Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Today we are gathered to uh, listen to uh, a little story about Jewish, where we're talking about the power that they have and they often don't use. Uh, our speaker today is Gabe Boslock, and he's from uh, BC. He's been teaching at many BC colleges and universities over the years, and he taken a keen interest in in what the Jewish are able to do. Just a few house cleaning items here. We we uh, we charge eleven dollars for lunch, and there's a basket at each table where people can uh, deposit the money. And I appreciate if if uh, one person at each table could actually count the money ahead of us picking it up. The session, uh, the talk will last twenty five minutes, and uh, then we'll have lunch. For those people that are not familiar with our usual procedure, and then there will be question period starting at 1 o'clock. Uh, I'd like to thank Shaw TV for coming out every week and uh, putting, on our, putting our, on our good show to the rest of the people that can't make it here. Sunday at 4.30, it's uh, being broadcast uh, on Shaw TV. I'd also like, like to thank uh, University of Lethbridge, who uh, is a big supporter of SACPA, helps us uh, financially and uh, distributing notices. And Country Kitchen Catering, which uh, always managed to feed whatever number we have. Be that uh, 50 or 130, they can manage. It's amazing, but they do. Um, so our talk today, the title of the talk is How Independent Are Juries in Coming to the Verdicts? How Constrained Are They by the Law? What happens if a jury refuses to find an obvious guilty defendant not guilty? I'd like you to invite uh, to welcome Gary Baslow to the podium. Thank you, Nude. It's a great, uh, I should say, it's a great pleasure to be here. I've heard about this organization for years, and it's an honor to be speaking to you. Um, I uh, much admire the motto of this organization, I just noticed on the board, but well-informed well citizens. So what I'm talking to you today about is uh, something that citizens are not well-informed about, but uh, I think ought to be. Something I learned about when I was working on a book on Robert Latimer a couple of years ago. One of the themes of this talk was expressed recently in the headline uh, in the Globe and Mail. I, I picked it up uh, it says, focus on mercy, not rules. I wanted to ask you, who do you think said that? Focus on mercy, not rules. 
It was the Pope. I was astonished. I have an ally in the Pope. Now, in December of 2011, 80-year-old retired chemist and social activist Julian Heichlin was arrested for handing out pamphlets on the steps of a New York City courtroom. He was charged with a criminal offense. Now, what was this criminal act? Was he advocating terrorism or sedition? Uh, was he advocating overthrow of government? Was he distributing child pornography? Hardly. He was handing out pamphlets that explained the basic and unquestioned right of juries and the right of jury independence to render whatever verdict they feel is just, regardless of what the law says. When juries exercise the right to go against the law, for example, refusing to find obviously def guilty defendant guilty, it is called jury nullification. The jury, in effect, nullifies the law. They refuse to follow the law. Now, the information in Heichlin's pamphlet was true. It gave an accurate explanation of the ab this absolute right of juries, but distributing it was viewed as a criminal act. The authorities in New York City view this as forbidden knowledge, and as you will see, authorities in Canada do as well. That idea will be another of the themes of this talk. What knowledge ought to be for forbidden? I should say at the outset that I'm amongst those who take the view that most knowledge ought not to be forbidden by authorities. Maybe uh, plans for making atomic weapons and certainly child pornography because it entails the exploitation of children. But most knowledge in a society built on the idea of freedom of speech, freedom of expression, most knowledge ought not to be forbidden by authorities. Now, another theme of this talk is social justice. By that, I mean equality, compassion, and fairness in society. Supporting minorities and the poor in search of greater social equality, not making their plight worse in comparison to those of us who are more privileged. Now, some of our political leaders have a better record in this respect than others. And it's not always been left-leaning ones that have a good, good record in this. Conservatism in politics does not necessarily mean hostility to the idea of social justice, although it might seem so in recent years in Canada and the U.S. The Conservative Party's John Diefenbaker, our 13th Prime Minister, has often forgotten that he was a great champion of social justice. This became overshadowed by various political fights later in his career, but he took a strong stance against apartheid in South Africa resulted in that, that country leaving the Commonwealth of Nations. He appointed the first female cabinet minister, the first Aboriginal Senate mem member, and he granted the vote to First Nations and Inuit peoples. He took actions to pass legislation that helped minorities and the poor. A childhood friend of mine was actually Diefenbaker's executive assistant in the 1960s. He told me a story about the time that uh, Diefenbaker first visited Churchill in London. Churchill invited him in and asked, offered uh, Diefenbaker a drink. Diefenbaker declined. So, Churchill said, you're a teetotaler, are you? Diefenbaker allowed that he was. Churchill looked at him and said, well, are you a prohibitionist then? Diefenbaker said, no. Churchill thought about this and said, well, then, you only hurt yourself. <laughs> Now, unfortunately, when politicians make bad laws, pandering to narrow constituencies, they do not hurt themselves at all. 
they hurt others, especially the minorities and poor. In March uh, 13th of 2012, our government passed Bill C C-10, the so-called Safe Streets and Communities Act. This act specified a drastic increase in the number of mandatory minimum sentences for, for uh, drug offenses. The result of this legislation has been what we might have expected. Uh, we could observe a similar circumstance in the U.S. when they passed their laws regarding the uh, ill-fated war on drugs. The uh, mandatory minimum sentences meant that in Canada we're already seeing more people being sent to prison with no decrease in drug use. We were warned about this by U.S. officials who were involved in drawing up the American laws. They wrote to us, when you start going down this road of building more prisons and sending people away for long periods of time, and you convince yourself that this is going to deter people, you've made a colossal mistake. And bear in mind, for the most part, these are victimless crimes, that the new laws disproportionately punish minorities and the poor, and that more people in prisons would ultimately mean more criminals on the streets because, as we know, prisons are schools for crime. And the mandatory minimum sentences mean that the law will be even more of a blunt instrument than it already had been. All of this is happening in spite of a general decrease in crime in both Canada and the United States. Now, most of us want a world characterized by justice, fairness, and simple human decency. But we find a justice system moving in the wrong direction. We see a system with diminishing latitude for judicial discretion and mercy. When I wrote my book about the Robert Latimer case a couple of years ago, as you know, I'm sure most of you know, it's the Canada's most famous case of mer mercy killing. I did not question that some punishment was due Latimer. We cannot have people deciding to end the lives of others with impunity, even in extreme circumstances. The punishment, however, was excessive. After 13 years of dedicated care for his daughter, his brain was damaged by oxygen deprivation at birth. Uh, this resulted in a life of uncomprehending pain for the child. Her brain never progressed beyond that of a three or four month old baby. And spastic uncontrolled motions of her body caused progressive damage to her frail body. By the age of 12, she had already lived longer than most children of, in her condition. And she was facing new operations and, incre and new incre increasing pain. This was an excruciatingly difficult situation for the Latimers and Robert simply could not bear it any longer. He compassionately ended her suffering. There's no question that it was an act of compassion. His judge, his jury, and even the prosecutor allowed that. But then Latimer went into seven years of legal proceedings, spent seven years in prison, spent three years on day parole, and now is on parole for the rest of his life with all the restrictions that entails. Even though his judge and his jury who saw all of the evidence against him, wanted at most a one-year token sentence. The justice system was unable to find a way to dispense justice in this case. Now, while we cannot know exactly what the jury was thinking, they were clearly dis distressed by what they perceived to be an obligation to find Latimer guilty, because he was obviously technically guilty. So they did what they, found, they thought was their legal duty. They found him guilty. A real option, however, a real possibility in this case, would have been to find him not guilty, jury nullification, 
going against the law when strict application of the law is unjust because of excess, in this case, excessive penalties. But Latimer's jury did not have Julian Heitland standing on the courtroom steps handing out tracts explaining the idea of jury nullification. They did not understand that this was an option. So why did Latimer's lawyer not tell him about it? To understand what happened here, we need to look at the trials of Henry Morgenthaler. Morgenthaler, as I'm sure most of you know, was a general practitioner in Montreal in the 70s. He witnessed the desperate plight of many women uh, who could not obtain abortions except under special, lim very limited circumstances. Otherwise, abortions were deemed illegal at the time. Morgenthaler gave a speech advocating uh, women's right to choose. And afterwards, a great many women came up to him asking for help. He turned them down at first, but then fell guilty. He saw the results of botched abortions. He opened an abortion clinic in defiance of the law. He was left alone at first by the Quebec government, but eventually his clinic was raided and he was arrested, brought to trial. There was no question of his guilt. He openly admitted to performing over 5,000 abortions. In open defiance of the law, he even carried one out on television. Still, he was found not guilty by his jury in Canada's most famous case of jury nullification. The jury simply did not view him as a criminal and as somebody who should be punished. Now, as an aside and a surprising action, uh, the Quebec Appeals Court reversed the decision, an extraordinary move, uh, having a judicial body reverse a jury decision. That can no longer happen. Because of that, Latimer, or, uh, Morgenthaler went to prison for 10 months suffered a great deal there, had a heart attack while in, while in isolation in prison. The law was subsequently changed, so that could no longer happen. You can no longer have a judicial appeal board overturning a jury decision. That's called the Morgenthaler Amendment to the Criminal Code. Now, Morgenthaler was prosecuted in all three times in Quebec. And three times the jury found him not guilty. He used to boast that no, no jury would ever find me guilty. Now, the Quebec government changed after those prosecutions, and the more socially liberal PQ party took over. They declared the abortion law unenforceable and refused to carry out any more prosecutions. They asked that the federal government change the federal law, but that was not forthcoming. So Morgenthaler's clinics continued in Quebec. But in the 1980s, he decided to up the ante. He set up clinics in Toronto and Winnipeg. He was prosecuted again now in Ontario, and this time his defense lawyer was the eminent Morris Manning, who, by the way, has written an introduction to uh, the book I have uh, just published on this topic. Um, complications in this Ontario trial made it chances of a prosecution perhaps more likely. I won't go into details. I explain it in the book. So Manning decided to tackle the uh, issue directly, and he said this to the jury. He wanted them to understand what their rights were. He said, It is up to you and you alone to apply the law to this evidence. And you have a right to say it shouldn't be applied. He's stating that the jury can, if it so wishes, decide not to apply the law. Morgan Teller's jury found him not guilty again. Now, jury nullification is based on an idea that juries must be fully independent that they can come to any decision they wish to come to for any reason. They need not explain themselves. In fact, they're not allowed to by law in Canada. And they cannot be punished for their actions. 
It's not well known, but it is an absolute and very important and uncontested right of juries, wherever legal systems are based on English law. It stems from the 1670 trial of William Penn, the famous Quaker who was prosecuted in London for preaching in public, and such actions had recently been prohibited by the, uh, by the government. It was a serious charge. It was actually a charge of sedition with a death penalty possible as a possible result. It was directed mostly at Puritans who did want to overthrow the government, but the peace-loving Quakers were caught up in this, this law as well and were arrested for public actions. Uh, the Quakers had no interest in sedition, but they believed strongly in their right to pursue, openly pursue their religion. Penn gave a magnificent performance at the trial uh, in, in his defense. It makes fascinating reading. Some of the uh, details of the trial are in the book. One passage uh, I particularly enjoyed for some reason. He said, uh, eloquent, the court tried, often tried to get him to shut up. One point, the judge said, stop his mouth, jailer, bring fetters and stake him to the ground. Defiant Penn replied, do your pleasure, I mind not your fetters. Now the trial was in the Old Bailey Courthouse, and his jury refused to find him guilty. The court, on the other hand, was outraged by this. They sent the jurors to prison without, in quotes, meat, drink, fire, and tobacco. <laughs> and they told Penn, uh, the jurors, we will have a verdict, by which they meant the right verdict, or you shall starve for it. It's extraordinary, sending jurors to prison because they didn't come up with the right, uh, right uh, verdict. Finally, they refused over and over again to find Penn guilty, even though pressed by the court. They're finally given heavy fines, equivalent of a year's salary, imprisoned until those fines were paid. Now, this extraordinary treatment was uh, challenged by one of the jurors named Edward Bushell, a very famous appeal, appeal to the British Appeal Court. And after some time, Justice John Vaughan ruled this. He said, the jury must independently and indisputably be responsible for its verdict, free of any threats from the court. This has since been a cornerstone of law. You can't force juries to make a particular decision. That is what Manning told, told Morgenthaler's jury. The result of the uh, not guilty verdict was a great triumph for social justice in Canada. It resulted in the acquittal of Morgenthaler for committing acts of human kindness, which happened at the time to be illegal. <laughs> the Morgenthaler trials led to the 1988, famous 1988 Supreme Court decision striking down the abortion law in Canada. This is a great triumph for Morgenthaler's courage, for, for Manning's defense, and for the idea of jury nullification. Now, I was talking about this with Robert Latimer when I was working on his book, and I mentioned Morgan, the Morgenthaler case to Latimer, and he uh, didn't know much about it, but he could remember his lawyer saying there was something good about that case and something bad. And this uh, puzzled me because, I mean, most Canadians think it was a, a good outcome, uh, uh, decriminalizing abortions, so they either think it's good, some Canadians think it was bad because they're opposed to abortion, but I didn't know what would be good, what, how somebody would see it as good and bad. And so I was curious about this. So I looked, I looked more closely into that 1988 Supreme Court judgment, and I found that there was a little-known judicial aside in that judgment 
didn't have to do with abortions, but had to do with the Manning defense. And what it did was ban future defenses like the one used by Manning. This was not a ban of jury nullification. That would destroy jury independence and set the clock back to the 17th century. But it was a ban on lawyers mentioning the possibility of jury nullification. That was Latimer's bad thing. And it was indeed a bad thing for him, because his jury, though sympathetic, felt obliged to find him guilty. And his lawyer, Mark Brayford, could not tell him about the possibility of nullification. Now, Latimer was harmed by the Supreme Court decision as aside, and many would agree that the idea of justice in Canadian courts was damaged as well. Juries are now prevented from voting their consciences, which is theoretically their right, simply because they do not know they can do so. Now, why did the Supreme Court of Canada do this? Um, I found that there's widespread uh, uh, antipathy towards jury nullification. The famous case in Alberta, 2005, of Grant Krieger, who was prosecuted for selling marijuana. He, he had a license to grow it for himself, for his medical condition, but he was selling it to others with a similar condition. Jurors were very sympathetic with this, but, uh, toward Krieger. When he was first tried in the early 2000s, he was found not guilty, even though he was technically guilty. But he tried again for further offenses in 2005, and this time the judge was Justice Shrumka. He was not about to, to uh, countenance such a thing happening in his court. After the trial, when he was giving his instructions to the jury, he ended with this. He said, Retire to the jury room to consider what I have said. Appoint one of yourselves to be your foreperson, and then return to the court with a verdict of guilty. Now, this was not a slip of the tongue. He doubled down on this when questioned by some of the jury members. One jury member said, well, we have two choices here. Trumka said, no, actually we have one choice, which is guilty. Now, this is an extraordinary thing to do. This would completely uh, render juries useless if a judge could uh, direct what the verdict could be. Why would you have a jury? Surprisingly, this went to the Alberta, Alberta well, not surprisingly, it went to appeals, uh, but surprisingly, the appeals court uh, upheld Trumka's actions and uh, upheld the guilty verdict. But then it went to the Canadian Supreme Court, and the ruling could not stand. I mean, people said it was the most expected decision in the history of the Supreme Court. You cannot have a verdict of guilty directed by a judge. It's absurd. And this whole case showed the absurdity of such a thing. But it did illustrate the hostility that the judiciary, and many of them at least, have towards the idea of nullification. They would go to such lengths to block it. Now, there are extensive reasons uh, given by various people, including in the Supreme Court judgment, about why uh, why they were trying to suppress nullification. I'm not going to go into it for sake of time. I'm not going to go into them now. They're outlined in detail in the book. And perhaps in question period, I could I could talk more about those if people are curious. Um, I'm going to just uh, um, move on past, uh, past these reasons. I, I, I explain some of the arguments about uh, that people use against nullification. Uh, and then I argue that uh, are any of these reasons sufficient to justify the suppression of nullification brought about by the Supreme Court? As with any principle of law, there are good and bad things about jury nullification. Habeas corpus, for example, can result in the release of dangerous criminals. 
Rules of evidence can be used in blocking of key evidence that could have a strong bearing on the court's decisions. All legal principles can and have been abused, but we do not abandon them if they are good principles. And the uh, Supreme Court decision, of course, was attempting essentially to block, block nullification, essentially ban it. By making jury nullification a secret, a tool for social justice, like habeas corpus, like requiring rules for the admission of evidence, has been largely removed from our courts. The Supreme Court of Canada has harmed people like Latimer who are no longer are likely to have the benefit of a sympathetic jury. There are a number of very convincing reasons for me why a ban on nullification is harmful. They're explained again in more detail in the book. I'll just mention a couple of them. Most obviously, if nullification is a fundamental right of juries, then they should know about it. It makes no sense to have a right which is, in effect, then denied by making it secret. It's also, I believe, a violation of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That charter says that those accused of indictable offenses have the right to the benefit of a trial by jury. They specify the benefit of a trial by jury. But there is no benefit to a jury, of having a jury, if they're not independent. If they, if they must do the bidding of the judge, then you might as well just have judges. It's also, I believe, discriminatory because some juries will know of their right of nullification. If you're on a jury, now you'll know about it. Most juries, however, don't know about it, at least at present. That means that the defendant may have the good fortune of having somebody, a jury that knows about nullification. Some may not. It's unequal treatment under the law. It's discriminatory. It's also uh, uh, the suppression of nullification undermines the basic purpose of juries. If they're not independent and are, in effect, judges would have it, assessors of facts. There are better and more efficient ways of doing this. If juries are, in effect, not independent, you might as well get rid of them. That's happened in certain countries like in India, Singapore, and South Africa. The future of the jury system itself, I believe, ultimately hangs on this question of independence. Losing that independence is a loss of tool for social justice and mercy, and it disproportionately hurts poor and the minorities. It's a loss of a means by which ordinary citizens, ordinary, ordinary citizens can fight back against injustice and grant mercy. There was a breakthrough in this regard in 2012 in New Hampshire, where they passed a law which specifically allowed defense lawyers to plead for nullification. It's already had positive effects there, where prosecutors are, no, are refusing to take certain cases forward uh, because of fear of nullification, certain minor drug offenses would have severe penalties. They're not taking the forward because they know they'll probably be nullified by the New Hampshire uh, courts, given that the defense lawyer can make such a case. However, most states try hard to suppress the idea, and Canada has effectively suppressed it through the actions of the Supreme Court. They turned this tool for social justice into forbidden knowledge. Now, I mentioned earlier that in 2012, the Safe Streets and Communities Act was passed, introducing problematic new mandatory minimum penalties. Previously, in 2008, the Tackling Violent Crimes Bill was passed, and it included this section. Every person in any place who possesses a prohibited loaded firearm or unlocked with ammunition readily accessible is guilty of an indictable offense, with a minimum of three years for the first offense. Now, for those of us who don't like guns, it didn't sound like such a bad idea at first. But then the uh, recent cases have shown the absurdity of this mandatory minimum. The most famous case is a young man named Leroy Smickle in Toronto. 
a young black man with a job. He's doing all right. He had a job, fiance, and a child. He happened to be staying at a cousin's apartment in Toronto. He found a loaded handgun there and foolishly decided to take photos of himself holding the gun with his uh, computer for some reason in his underwear. Just as he, was do- he thought these would be cool pictures. Just as he was doing this, the police broke down the door. They were looking for the cousin who, uh, who I guess was some kind of criminal. Swinkle, of course, immediately dropped the gun, and, but he was arrested and charged under the 2008 bill, liable for three years in prison, which could destroy the young man's life. The justice in this case, Justice Anne Malloy of Toronto, refused to give the mandatory penalty. That decision is currently, of course, immediately appealed because it's uh, violating the law. Currently under appeal, will likely go to the Supreme Court of Canada. I don't have any great hopes, though, that Smickle will be uh, granted the minor, the uh, freedom from that penalty, because uh, the uh, courts tend to respect uh, legislation. Now, open recognition of nullification would provide another way of dealing with these legal inflexibilities that are being built into the law. We are going to need this so that ordinary citizens can fight against unjust laws. The actions of our government in bringing in tougher crime laws, especially mandatory minimum sentences, unfortunately has not hurt them. But these actions have hurt others, especially minorities and the poor. This is the opposite of social justice. And the Supreme Court of Canada has exacerbated this social injustice by forbidding this crucial knowledge to jurors. We have increasingly harsh and unjust laws at a time when jury independence has been effectively suppressed by the Supreme Court. I don't know how the situation can be changed, although certain ideas are discussed in the book. But now you know this secret. Now should you find yourselves on a jury, you are empowered to fight against this conspiracy of silence. If as a society we wish to focus, as the Pope suggested, on mercy and not rules, if we wish to seek ways to support social justice, then collectively we need to fight against this forbidden knowledge and this paternalistic and disrespectful treatment of juries. Thank you.